find an elite seller as somebody who knows their customer's business as well or better than the customer. So they understand what are the future problems and challenges coming to that industry, which is not as hard as it sounds. Just go study up on the financial news for that industry and that business. And being able to have the solution before they know they have the need, understand their business. It works every single time. This is what I think we need in the intros. A little bit more spice. We're so corporate-y. Okay, so, hi, okay, I agree with you, but how do you do it? Like, welcome to another episode of the Elite Selling Podcast. I'm Frankie. And I'm Griffin. And we are ready to talk about- Let's go! Competitive Intel information. And we've got an amazing guest on today, Lynn Kopp. Lynn! She is a legend at AMD, and she is the head of global strategy, marketing, and product management. Uh, we go deep on the three competitive vectors, so this is a great one. You're going to want to check in and buckle up for this one. Let's get into it. Lynn, welcome to the Elite Selling Podcast. We're so glad to have you today. We're going to be talking about the three vectors of competitive selling. So as a way of getting started, Lynn, can you break that down for us and explain why you're so passionate about it? Absolutely. The reason I'm so passionate is because two out of the three completely surprised me when I was starting out and trying to get deals. So the three vectors is the one we all know, direct competitors, like pretty much what you're offering and you know exactly what the features are, where you're going to have an edge where they might be positioning against you. So that's direct competition. I think the one that a lot of us are facing right now is the cost of doing nothing in status quo. A lot easier to stick with what you've got and just settle for either depreciation if you're talking about hardware or not having to do work, just kind of rolling out and maintaining what you have, just doing break fix if you happen to be trying to sell enterprise IT equipment. Third one, that is where the alternative solutions come in. And those tend to be a huge sideswipe that if you can see it coming, you can hold it off, but very often you don't. Yeah. What do you, Lynn, what do you think, uh, I guess, if you had to pick one out of the three, like what's the biggest threat you're seeing today in 2023? It's uh, almost mm -hmm. beginning of May. What yeah. are you seeing right now? So I think a great example can be, you can look at the auto market. So you see a lot of brand to brand competition, right? Lexus versus some of the high-end Tesla or something like that. Or everyone's trying to bring in their EV. So you've got a ton of new EV brands. I think the one that a lot of people are really coming up against is the fact, if you have an auto, why replace it? Why go ahead and go through all the hassle of trying to buy new equipment that could be better when you have a sunk cost and then you're not actually having to have a replacement cost. And so there are very few people who for themselves are going to do crossover curves of at what point does sticking with what you have cost you too much. And so what I like to do is help, help customers total their car. 
So in other words, if you think about what happens when an insurance company is looking at whether it's worth repairing the car or replacing the car if you get into an accident, you want to help the customer total their car. Uh, it might not be a car. It could be enterprise IT equipment. It could be software licenses. It could be staying in cloud as opposed to moving on-prem. Effectively, you have to do the math for them so they understand the point at which they're going to have better returns with your offer than they are with staying put on what they have now. I love that analogy of helping the helping them crash or total their car. I might we, we're gonna have to steal that one, frankly. Right. Uh, but and I've got a Tesla parked in the driveway for what it's worth. You know, uh, that was a, that was an easy switch. Uh, so, Lynn, a question for you. I mean, relative to the software, uh, which you know, Frankie and myself, you know, a lot of our listeners are more on the software side. Um, the like the walk me through the some of the questions you're asking customers prospects about the competitive environment that you're selling into to understand is there an opportunity timing change in leadership challenges with an existing tool or, or what what might yeah. might that look like but walk walk us through a little bit mm -hmm. of some of the discovery you you know you go through as you evaluate sort of a competitive situation? I think one of the big things with software right now is understanding the cutover between what would be a traditional license structure uh, with maintenance and some of those ongoing costs that you more your typical sell that you would get with enterprise packages, right? A lot of companies are transitioning over to as a service models. So you get use case or use time or licenses or license seats. It sort of depends on what kind of software you're talking about, whether you're gonna end up with an enterprise-wide license and it's a consumption-based model. But really what it comes down to is helping them understand, again, the math of where am I going to save money and how does this pencil out to look like the model that I used to know? I think that transition is still underway with some of the enterprises. Right. Um, and I don't know that a lot of customers understand you could pay more with the as-a-service model unless you're really, really specific and you know what you need. Yeah. How do you, so as a, as a rep who might not have control over how the company is pricing and how the company is structuring things, how can a rep take ownership of that regardless of what their company is doing? I think you gave a couple key examples, but would love to drill down a little bit further into that. Yeah, I think that it comes down to finding the relationships with people that do want that change. One of the things that I found time and time again in status quo changes, you very often have a technical decision maker who knows if I don't make this change, I am going to recruit technical debt I cannot afford long-term, this is not good for the company. It's not good for our solution. It's not good for our customers who are using these solutions we're offering. And so very often it can be a budget owner that is going to be the one they're coming up against. So if you can get on the same side with the people who are trying to move these practices forward and help them make the budget case to the budget owner, then that would be a super helpful way of doing this. And one example that I've seen, uh, I saw a sponsored piece with an analyst that's really popular for some of these enterprise IT buying decisions. And they were basically helping total out 
the cost of staying on standard enterprise legacy networking versus moving to software-defined networking solutions with VMware. So care to guess who sponsored that piece? Yeah, <laughs> got it. And it was, how do I help the people who I know need this technology, who need the solution, how do I help them speak the language of the people who are telling them, no, let's stick with what we have, when they know that that's going to cause a really fragile architecture and long term, it's going to accrue technical debt that the company just can't afford long term. Yeah. Yeah, I so, mean, what, you're, what I'm hearing you say is you have to handhold in a way of saying, if you don't do, if you don't make yes. the switch, then you will total mm -hmm. your car, or total your tech yes. debt or whatever you're talking through. So um, I think yeah. that's- Can you afford to total it now or later? And would you like you to sneak up on you later or would you like to create a plan so that you can actually structure the transitions? Yeah. So double kind of double clicking on that one a little bit, Lynn. One, one competitive situation that Frankie and I run into a lot these days is what we call, what is it? FOMU, fear of messing oh, yes. up. Right, which yeah. is kind of another oh, way yeah. of saying doing nothing. Yeah. And it's just, it's coming up in almost every single one of my deals where we get everything lined up and then it's just like, okay, I don't want to make this change or I, you know, I don't want to be the one that mm -hmm. I hitch my wagon to this purchase or I'm just going to stick right. with this solution because uh, it's riskier to go to something new, right? Mm -hmm. How do you see the best elite? top sellers sort of navigate that conversation, get ahead of that, yes. handle that objection? First of all, they help them find other people who can be behind them mm -hmm. so that it's not just their name on right. that. The other thing that I do that I love doing is pulling out historical architecture changes that were being fought against really heavily. Like a great example, um, this is a little bit older, but you know, at one point, there was a CEO of a major computer company who said there might be a market for five personal computers in the world. So who needs those? And so if you can find those transitions of, do you really want to be in the wrong place of history? Mm -hmm. Do you really want to be the person that is the subject of what not to do right. in the case studies? Do you really want to be the person that everyone's looking at and saying, are you freaking kidding me? You kept us on this technology. A great example is um, finding somebody that is coming into that organization fairly new as, and they want to mark themselves as a change agent. Um, great example, when I was at Intel, one of the CIOs came in and she had a design engineering background. She was not a CIO and she was fearless and she was going to put her name on a marked change that moved that organization forward. And they were going to be leaders for the next generation of IT. And so essentially she cut off their budget. She was convinced this is what I'm going to hang my hat on. I'm going to advance in the industry with this. She cut off their budget for legacy and only allowed them to purchase for the new kind of phase of what was coming in as the new technology. So if you can find allies like that, that will help those people who are at the lower levels feel a lot less concerned. It's all on me. It really is safety in numbers, I think. So building that groundswell of support around key decision makers mm -hmm. in a deal in an existing customer so that it's 
the risk the um, is spread across yes. the entire organization. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is I think a lot of sellers are often trained to look for the highest level decision maker in the organization mm -hmm. and try and get that close with that individual. The reality is that person generally has at least three to five other people at different levels of the organization that are influencing their decision. And very often, depending on how hierarchical the company is, you can find somebody who's four levels down and three groups removed that is advising that decision maker and trying to ferret out who are the people that are going to have an opinion and are going to share that with this decision maker so that they're on that side as well. Right. And it's seen as, oh, there's no risk in this because everybody's convinced this is the right direction. Yeah, that's great. Going back to one of the things that you said, um, what I heard, I've heard this in a book by a guy named Oren Claff. It's called Pitch Anything. Mm -hmm. He talks about building a story around winter is coming. And yes. you were talking about, hey, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Mm -hmm. How do you, let's go into that a little bit further. How do you formulate that? And like, how do you go and look for those different stories? Maybe you're at a, a newer company or maybe you don't have a great example of this, what happens if you fail? Like, what do you, what can you look for as a seller to formulate that story? Hmm. So for, it depends on the industry that you're in. And I'll just give a couple examples. If you're selling to someone like financial services, oil and gas, um, they're going to be a lot less conservative in terms of their appetite for adopting new things, because for them, a uh, competitive edge with their com competition really does come down and it's rooted in the latest practices. So if you're talking more towards um, not physical goods, but smaller software startups, smaller, smaller software companies or services companies, um, very often they are going to hit or miss based on being able to attract talent. And a lot of the talent is going to be attracted by those modern practices. So for example, imagine trying to come and attract somebody into a startup. If the only thing that you're doing is going to be vSAN, if that's all that they're going to be able to hang their hat on. Meanwhile, they can see there's all this generative AI, there's practices with cloud native practices. They want to do DevOps. So what kind of talent pool are you attracting by sticking onto that specific kind of uh, technology vector, if you will? Um, so it does depend on industries. I wouldn't try that modern technology with manufacturing because they do tend to be a little bit slower unless you're in high tech manufacturing. So I would go industry dependent. What is the pace of that industry? And is their competitive edge based on a technology change? And if that is, then it's really um, pointing out to them that you were just down the street earlier that day and had a really exciting conversation about it. This works really well with Wall Street or in Houston. Yeah. Yeah. So what, oh, uh, go ahead, Frankie. No, I was going to make a comment and say it, it gives you... Um, it helps them alleviate the pain of the fear of, of messing up because it's just like anything. If you, if you go and Google something of recommendations versus your friend coming and saying, Hey, these are the things we're doing. It, it kind of gives you that social proof and that social credit. So to your point, I think it's better if you can give a specific competitor example of, Hey, these are the things that they are thinking about. Why wouldn't yeah. you want to do something similar to them? You're going to get yeah. 
Yeah, if you happen to be selling anything related to security, one of the smartest things I've ever seen is a company that was marketing, um, they were marketing cloud instances versus secure cloud instances. And when the page came up for people in IT to decide what am I going to order? It was, would you like insecure or secure? <laughs> and yeah. it's only a dollar more. So guess what everyone picked? Because you have that culpability of, see, I picked the secure one. It's not my fault. Um, yeah. So there is a lot of that, that you can use that psychology to help. So, so Lynn, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, Frankie and I are both experienced, seasoned veteran sales professionals at our existing company. We know the competitive landscape. We know every comp, we know all the objection handling, every competitor, every, everything about them. But let's think about a, uh, asking for a friend, right? So let's say we've yeah. got new reps ramping at a, at a company. It could be my company, it could be your company, mm -hmm. MD, Intel. Um, if they are in their enablement session, day one or day two, and there's a section on competition, they've got it's an hour long session, and they they got to get ramped up as fast as possible on the three vectors. It's the you know main competitors, cost of doing nothing, and the gravity wins. What's your recommendation to sort of like what key knowledge do you need to know about each of those? Like what recommendations would you make to a new rep to understand the competition, understand gravity wins and the cost of doing nothing. So they can get ahead of that as fast as possible. Maybe walk us through a little bit, uh, you know, around that. The easiest thing, the easiest thing to do is figure out what you have. They don't. Yeah. Because that is so often missed. Um, I was just having this conversation internally with, uh, one of our technologists about a feature that we have that a competitor does not. And they, their claim was, well, you know, not a lot of people are using it. <laughs> like, yes, right. but it's future-proofing, right? You need this to help future-proof for flexibility and, you know, and trying to lead them down that path of what can this be used for? Where will that give you an edge? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people focus in on specs, spec to spec, feed to feed. It really comes down to how do you reduce anybody's risk for being able to move to what you have? And a lot of that is creating that I need to have what they have that this other solution does not. Um, I think the one thing that a new rep should never worry about is the orthogonal thing that can come in and really surprise you. Great example, back going back to the automotive, um, you've got direct competition, brand to brand, dealer to dealer. Status quo, I have a car, you have to help them total the car. The next one is really um, what happens when you're selling cars and you're in downtown San Francisco and something like Uber and Lyft come in. How do you deal with that? So that's another one where I think a lot of people get surprised by these new services when an industry goes from don't talk to strangers on the internet, don't give your financial information on the internet, never get in a car with a stranger to forget taxis. Uber works great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's a great point. So thinking about like going off of what Grip just said of being a new rep, thinking about the different features and functions. One thing that popped into my, my mind was how do you not oversell like future products or future uh, use cases versus like sharing what you have on the roadmap today? Like I find that to be something that I'm constantly balancing because you always have to mm -hmm. sell the sizzle, not the steak, but you also don't right. want to over promise and under deliver. Like what's your thought on that? 
I think that the main thing is to give them an idea of the optionality that what you bring can get them somewhere. It's more of a journey than an outcome. I think a lot of people that need to sell capabilities that will be built in or that could be built in based on market demand, they're guaranteeing outcomes as opposed to opening up possibilities and optionality for the future, if that makes sense. Because if you're starting to give results guarantees of if you have this feature, you are going to be X percent more secure, or you're going to be um, closing your factories this much earlier or something along those lines, you can't guarantee those outcomes. You don't know until you've actually got something that's a feature that's built and tested. It's more here's the capabilities that you will be able to future-proof. One example that, um, you know, we've been talking through with customers is that most of the enterprises are still doing virtualization and yet all of them want to have cloud native containers as they are able to transition into that. So how do you do both? You know, instead of only do containers, so like, how do we transition you between those worlds? Now, most of them are never going to work on containers for the next five years, but the potential of I can stay on that train and I can be concurrent with what would be common practice, I think that is enough. And you're not guaranteeing to them that they're going to be um, like Salesforce. You're just basically saying you have the potential to grow. You have the potential to go down this future path that's going to be important for your business. So I I like the idea of not guaranteeing outcomes because you can get into pretty hot water. It can be pretty tricky when you start guaranteeing outcomes. But to come back to what you mentioned earlier around the key thing you need to do or a ramping rep or any sales rep uh, needs to do is clearly highlight what you offer that the other competitors cannot. Right. That comes down to some features. And, you know, we're always taught don't pitch feature functionality because mm-hmm. you're going to get, you know, delegated to who you sound like. And it's not going to you're not going to get a, a what we would call a mega deal. Right. A, a deal. Mm-hmm. Above mm-hmm. But at the same time, you do need to anchor on those key things that you can do that the others can't. Mm-hmm. Why that matters. Right. And kind of lead yes. them down that path to potential outcomes. Hey, here's what we've done with X, Y, and Z customers. When we've mm-hmm. implemented, they looked at like you for to a T. They've gotten the same sort of uh, stack. They ran into the same problems. And that's, that's where sort of having those um, right. customer success stories comes in to help a lot, I imagine. Customer success stories make a huge difference because mm-hmm. if you look at how a lot of people are making decisions, um, it was they're going to go call an analyst. They call Gartner, they call IDC, Forrester, they tend to refer to that still, but now more and more people are getting their recommendations from birds of a feather, from people who are in the same industry, who have similar practices, from competitors. They're also getting some advice off of Reddit. You know, there's a lot of really unusual channels that are starting to come in to advising those decisions and, you know, helping them understand how it aligns to whatever they happen to be interested in. And again, it's it's knowing, like, where do they get their research from? Who is influencing them? 
are they, you know, there's a lot of people that are making IT decisions that are gamers and they make their own PCs. And so you find all these interesting segues and channels where you can start planting information about potentials that are very unconventional compared to a few years ago. You just, you just gave a really, really good nugget of information when it comes to knowing your competitive advantage and what the competitors are saying, mm-hmm. because if they, if, if our buyers are have access to Reddit, if they have access to G2, if they have access to whatever other forums they're looking at, that's where we as sellers should be spending our time yeah. as well to know what people are candidly talking about and not what the website says, but what actually people are reviewing, what Reddit is talking about. Because right. then you're able to, to your point, get ahead of it and, and talk through that and be educated and meet them where they are. I've never thought about that. So that's uh, that was a really good point that you just made. Yeah. I Honestly, I was so surprised. Um, we were interviewing for a competitive lead and they pointed out that there's tools like Clue and there's other things that you can do. There's plenty of great tools that are available for competitive marketing to really understand um, who is interacting with your competitor that's in your customer list. What are they saying? And then how do you reposition yourself? So you can get ahead of that. Uh, But the Reddit one surprised me. And, you know, it does turn out that a lot of people that are making technology decisions at work, they make technology decisions at home, too. Mm -hmm. So, Lynn, where do you see the the, and this is not just a sales related question. When we think about competition, that's a that's a Mm -hmm. company wide challenge, focus, you name it. Right. Where do you see the top, let's focus on maybe sellers uh, or even marketers. Where do you Mm -hmm. see the top uh, go-to-market folks gather competitive intel outside of the normal, okay, I'm going to go look at their website. I'm going to go look at G2. I'm going to go look at customer reviews, maybe even talk to previous customers, but Mm -hmm. maybe give us some ideas for places that we can grab competitive intel that are maybe a little bit more creative. There are a lot of of micro-influencers out there right now who blog on very specific topics. I would make sure to get to know who is blogging on what you're selling or what problem you're trying to solve and figure out, you know, some of them only have... They only have audiences of 10,000 people, but if that audience includes someone you're selling to, it would be really helpful to know. So there are people in security, people in AI, people in general IT, um, really figuring out who are the people that are loudest that are perceived to be independent. I think everyone understands when somebody is paid to write something, they're going to have, they'll have influence. They're going to have less influence. But when they are somebody who has the perception of being organic and they are out there talking about enterprise security software and they're doing reviews, probably a good person to either get to know or have your marketing department figure out how do we get closer to them so they understand where we excel because that grassroots speaking for you, I mean, it's it's basically a business reflection of how a lot of people buy off of Instagram or Facebook ads. Yeah, you're, you're right. I'm thinking about the LinkedIn posts that I've seen in our world that Griff and I live in of 
selling go to market tech and, you know, the recommendations that people make, I'm like, huh, did they get paid for that? Or is that just what they wanted exactly. to say? That's a, exactly. that's a great point. Um, Lynn, what's something that we should know about these three vectors that we haven't talked about? What's on your mind mm -hmm. that you haven't shared yet? So I think the one thing, the interesting angle can be, what are business agreements that can completely undermine the value prop for what we're selling? You know, I gave the example of, I mean, Uber was basically, how do you connect a person who has a car that wants to drive to somebody who needs a ride but can't find a taxi? Very practical, but it started undermining car sales at some point. I don't think that that's a place to start, although it makes really interesting case studies. Um, it's, that's more in the mega deal kind of context where it can really sideswipe you. I think the biggest thing is the status quo and then figuring out all of those relationship influences. I've seen so many sellers, they have one relationship. And yes, that individual makes a lot of decisions, but not having the relationship with the people influencing their decisions, that's just such a classic mistake. And I see it with really, really mature salespeople. Um, and perhaps they just haven't been bitten by it yet, but I've had so many tech transformations that I've been pushing forward be undermined by a whisper network of somebody that was three levels down in a lab that just didn't really understand what was the value of what we were pitching. Yeah, yeah I agree. All right, so we're gonna we gonna we gonna stop for our listeners. Pause really quick and just shout it for the people in the back. Elite sellers multi-thread. They yes. do not stop at one champion. They build multiple champions. When they build one or two, they keep going, right, to multiple departments. They do not single thread. I think that is summarizing yes. what you just mentioned is a huge gap. And I'm I'm absolutely guilty of it. Not as much as Frankie's guilty of it, you know. Yeah. But I, I definitely <laughs> I am very guilty of single threading and thinking, oh, this guy's telling me we're getting a deal. We're getting a deal. Right. Nah, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, multi-threading. I, <laughs> I love that description. I love that yeah. description because the other thing, just think about future-proofing your presence in that account. Yeah. You know, yeah. you always have to assume someone can get sick. Someone can be out of the office. They can move on to other jobs, which opens up potentially a different account for you. But how are you going to keep your footprint in the one that you have? It's a lot yeah. easier to keep what you have than open new. Yeah. And knowing your competitor's champion. Who is, right. who is pushing the other product in the account. Absolutely. Maybe you might not be able to become best friends with them, but you need to at least know what they're talking about to the EB or to the other influencers. Right. Yeah, I agree. And if it's familiarity that's causing them to be your competitor's champion, how do you get in there so that they feel comfortable and start to be feeling comfortable with what you're offering? Because, you know, at some point, when an agreement comes open, they're either going to be required to look at other options just so that they can say they've had multi-party bids, um, or they may consider you if you get into get, getting to know what they need and what are their concerns. So, Lynn, as we, as we sort of get, get close to wrapping, I would love to understand some recommendations for our listeners around, and Frankie and I usually ask this, around resources mm -hmm. that sellers can leverage to improve their knowledge of their competition, improve their knowledge of the status quo and how to handle those objections. I'm curious if you have any recommendations for our listeners that, you know, would be a great place to start. Mm, yeah. I, you know, what's really funny is 
they change so frequently. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've ever traveled in Asia, but there are certain countries that don't like VPNs. So every time I land, I have to ask the person I'm traveling with, what's the VPN to download this time? Because mm. <laughs> it's the one that hasn't been found out yet. Um, so I really like to go on to what are the top tools for that year, starting in the first quarter, and really understand where they able to scrape the searches, how can they track the search engine optimizations? Um, and then also there are trackers that you can use to watch LinkedIn postings and who's reacting to those LinkedIn postings. And again, what is the best tool to use every year seems to change from what I've seen. So what I normally do is a web search between December and February what are the new things that have come out? What are their features and what can they help me find that's new? Uh, because again, in the software world, and when we're doing a lot of our research on the internet, there's that something being developed that's new all the time. And all of them have a great edge if you know what you are looking for and what gaps you need to fill. One of the ones that we're using right now quite a bit that I'm finding gets a lot of traction is Clue, spelled with a K. So I think that that's a good start point. But there's a lot of other options. If you're at a smaller company, and you know, that license cost is, is just out of range. You can start by just doing LinkedIn searches, right? Yeah. The theme I'm hearing you say a couple of times is, is you're really thinking like your buyers, you're putting your, your buyer hat on and thinking yes. about how are they going and finding new technology and what are the trends? So that way you can be educated when you show up to a sales call or a networking event or anytime you're yeah. in front of prospects or buyers. So that's great insight. So last question we got for you here, Len, is how do you define an elite seller? I define an elite seller as somebody who knows their customer's business as well or better than the customer. So they understand what are the future problems and challenges coming to that industry which is not as hard as it sounds, just go study up on the financial news for that industry and that business. And being able to have the solution before they know they have the need, understand their business. It works every single time. The amount of confidence that that gives you as a seller going yes. into a new conversation with a new persona uh, it is so valuable because you are no longer, I think the biggest objection sellers face is, I don't trust you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know you. You are not credible. You right. do not understand my business. Uh, John Kaplan, shout out, John Johnny K would, would call it the seller, seller deficit yeah. disorder, right? You don't understand right. my business and you don't listen. And understanding that that is the fastest way to build trust and credibility is really understanding the customer's yeah. business as well, if not better than they do. So. That is a great, great definition. Awesome. Yeah, so we'll we'll wrap there, Lynn. Thank you so much for your time, for your insights. I learned a ton. I got a lot of notes to take. You know, <laughs> apparently I, I got a lot of catching up to do with Griff with multi-threading. So, you know, thank you. Thank you for uh, for being here, Lynn. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thanks, Lynn. Lynn, thank you for jumping on today's episode. Appreciate your time. Hope you're doing well in Austin. Can't wait to see you soon. Some great takeaways from this episode. I mean, uh, as we were going through this, I had a few deals in mind in my head of where I need to get a little bit tighter on the competitive understanding of the landscape. But ultimately, this comes back to thinking like the buyer. Putting Put yourselves in the shoes of the buyer. Understand 
the current uh, competitors they have in place understand why they would have fear of messing up or stay with the status quo and just try and get ahead of some of the gravity wins. Worst case scenario, help them total the car. The key takeaway I had was multi-threading. Got to get multi-threaded because when you are multi-threaded within your opportunities, you are less likely to lose a deal to the status quo. Frankie, what I miss? Yeah, I love that Lynn talked about ensuring that you're guiding your customer or prospect through how to total their car, right? How to, if you make this mistake and don't make this change, what's the cost of doing nothing and not just leaving it up to them to think through that by themselves. I like that, like you mentioned, you were thinking like a buyer, you're going and researching what are resources that they have available to uh, understand your competitive landscape and going in and doing the homework for them. So uh, great episode with Len and we are excited to have her back soon.